0: And the man answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Toward the very end of this gospel, John the evangelist makes a rather remarkable admission. In chapter 20, beginning at verse 30, he writes these words. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is John's way of reminding us that he is writing this gospel with a specific goal or purpose in mind. In other words, he has not undertaken to write an exhaustive or comprehensive history of Jesus' entire life and ministry, a record of everything that Jesus ever said or did. In fact, John admits that Jesus did so many extraordinary things during the course of his earthly ministry that if they were all to be written down, he said the world would not be able to contain the volumes. No, he's clear, he is writing this gospel with a particular goal in view. And that goal is that you and I should come to know Jesus Christ. And when John says, know Jesus Christ, he doesn't mean to simply know about Jesus. He means to know him personally, and as a consequence to have eternal life in his name. Now, when you stop and think about it, there's nothing particularly revolutionary in that. All good authors write with a purpose or a goal in mind. Some, for instance, write for the purpose of educating. Some write for the purpose of entertaining. Some write for the purpose of provoking. Some, particularly those in academia, often write for the purpose of gaining a position or tenure. It's a case of publish or perish. But the point is, whatever the goal, whatever the purpose, every good author understands that he or she must be selective in terms of their material. You simply cannot say everything that you would like to say about a particular subject, although we know that preachers sometimes give it a try. No, if you're writing with a specific purpose in view, you have to be selective. You can only use that material that actually supports your goal, your purpose, your argument, your thesis. Well, John tells us that is what he is doing here in this gospel. And I think that's a very important point for you and me to keep in mind when it comes to John chapter 9 in this story of the man born blind, because it reminds us that John has not included this story in his gospel at random. He has included this particular miracle, one of only seven that he records in his gospel, because it serves his purpose. It helps us to come to know Jesus, to know about him, to know what he came to do. It helps us to come to know him personally that you and I may have eternal life in his name. Now, in one sense, all of John's gospel is designed to do this. All seven of the miracles that he records are designed to bring us into a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. If you've been in the Rector's Forum where we have been studying this fourth gospel, you've seen this borne out in some of the other miracles that John records. Changing of the water into wine at the wedding feast in Cain of Galilee, the healing of the paralytic by the pool of Bethesda, the feeding of the 5,000 by the Sea of Galilee. All of these miracles are designed to accomplish that goal of bringing us into a relationship with Jesus Christ. But what I have discovered is that this particular story, the one that we have before us today, is unique in this regard. It's unique in that it doesn't just reveal to us an aspect of Jesus' character or ministry. This is a story that actually paints for us a portrait in miniature of the entire gospel enterprise. This one story encapsulates, if you will, the whole of the Christian good news. And let me show you what I mean. This story begins, John tells us, with Jesus and his disciples passing on the road when they came upon a man who had been blind from birth. Now understand, blindness was a far more common affliction in the first century than it is today. This was due to any number of circumstances. Part of it was due to the fact that people lived in very difficult work conditions that were hazardous in the extreme. Uh, Most people in that day, of course, did manual labor. Many of them worked in close proximity to livestock, and the result is that there were frequent accidents. An animal, for example, might kick you in the face, and you would lose your eyesight for life. There was also a significant portion of the population that had served in the military, drafted into service during the great wars of the empire, and they came back having been wounded in action, having lost their eyesight. And then there was a not too insignificant portion of the population that lost its eyesight as the result of illness or disease or infection. Infection was a major killer in the first century. People didn't understand much about personal hygiene, conditions were oftentimes unsanitary, and they would develop infections, often infections of the eyes. Things like virulent trachoma and conjunctivitis, things that we can treat quite easily today with an antibiotic. But in that day, before the advent of modern medicine, things would go from bad to worse, and a person would lose their eyesight completely. It was tragic. And let's not forget that in the first century, there were no agencies or institutions to help the blind either. There were no schools for the blind. There was no braille language. There were no homes for the visually impaired. And when you add to this the fact that most Jews in the first century believed that if a person was suffering from any kind of physical malady, but blindness in particular, it was the result of God's judgment on them. Well, then you begin to understand just how terrible and debilitating blindness was for a person in the first century. Blindness was a terrible disease or condition. It was something that left a person out in the dark physically. It left them out in the cold socially. It was very isolating. A blind person in the first century had no recourse if they were going to survive but to sit by the side of the road and beg for alms and plead for mercy because they were utterly and completely helpless and hopeless. Well, this is the first reason you see why John includes this particular story in his gospel, because he wants us to understand that this man's physical condition is analogous to our own spiritual condition apart from God. We are spiritually blind. You'll notice that John points out that this man had been blind from birth. That means this is not a man who had been hurt on the job or wounded in battle. This is not a man who had developed a disease that had robbed him of his eyesight. No. This man had been born blind. You might say this was his natural state. Well, are you aware of the fact that the Bible teaches that spiritual blindness is our natural state? That we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? Paul writing in Romans chapter 3 says, there is no one righteous, no not one. There is no one who is capable of seeking God. The prophet Isaiah says, men and women know nothing. They understand nothing because their eyes are, listen to this, plastered over because of sin so that they cannot see and their minds are closed so that they cannot understand. How did Jesus describe even the religious folk of his day, the people who should have been enlightened? The scribes and the Pharisees, he said they were nothing but blind guides leading other blind men by the hand into a pit. My friends, do you understand this is the unanimous witness of Holy Scripture, that you and I, because of the sin in our lives, are spiritually blinded to the things that matter most. And this is not a a condition that has developed over the course of time. No, like this man in John chapter 9, it is our natural state. David in Psalm 51 says, Before I was born, in my mother's womb, I was a sinner. That's his way of saying that we are all O.S. positive, original sin positive. And the result is that we are like blind men and women. We are groping around in the dark, desperately trying to find God, trying to find our way home, but we cannot do it. We cannot come to know him personally. Reminds me of that parable that came out of India. I'm sure you've heard it about the five blind men who have heard about this exotic animal called the elephant. And they want to discover what the elephant is like but they can only do it by mere touch. So the first blind man comes along and he touches the elephant's trunk and he becomes convinced that the elephant is like a great snake. The second blind man touches the elephant's ear and he becomes convinced that the elephant is like a great fan. Third man touches the elephant's leg and he becomes convinced that the animal is like a great column on a building. Fourth blind man touches the elephant's side and he's convinced that the elephant is like a great immovable wall. And the last blind man, the fifth one, touches the elephant's tail. And he comes away with the impression that the elephant is like a long leathery rope. The point being, of course, is that no one comes away with an accurate picture of what the elephant is really like, do they? They only come away with a partial fragmented picture, and it's one that is based upon their own subjective experience. Well, the scripture teaches that that is exactly the way it is with you and me. We are like the Cyclops after he's been blinded by Odysseus. We are just out there sort of groping around, desperately trying to find our way. But the only thing we come to is a fragmented picture of God and one that is based upon our subjective experience, one that is inaccurate at best. Let me ask you a question this morning. Does that describe your life? Do you ever feel as though you are out there in the world sort of groping around, trying to find peace, trying to find satisfaction, trying to find home, but you you cannot do it? You may be groping around in the New Age movement. You may be groping around in Eastern mysticism. You may be groping around in the drug culture, but whatever it is, there is something that is missing in your life. You may be highly successful in the eyes of the world, a string of degrees behind your name. You may have a big bank account. You may have a beautiful family. But the question is this, is there a disquietude within your heart? You still feel that there's something missing. How did you two put it? You still haven't found what you're looking for. Well, if that is the case in your life today, I want you to understand something. You're not alone. You're actually part of the vast majority of the world's population today. But you need to understand, the Bible is clear, you will never find your way home. You will never find your way back to God because of the sin in your life, you are spiritually blind. And your only hope, my only hope is that someone will come and do for us what was done for this man in John chapter 9. And that is the second reason why John records this particular story in his gospel. It's because this story reveals to us that there's only one who can do it. Only Jesus Christ can restore our blinded sight And he is willing to do it at great personal cost to himself. I think this is one of the tenderest scenes anywhere in the gospel, the way that Jesus deals with this man. I said earlier that most Jews in the first century believed that if a person was suffering from any kind of physical malady, but blindness particularly, it was because they were under the judgment of God. The belief was if you were suffering, it was because someone, either you or someone close to you, had done something terrible. You'll notice that is exactly what the disciples thought. In verse 2, they came upon this man, and the first thing they say to Jesus is this, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The assumption was somebody, somewhere, did something really bad. F.F. F. Bruce, who is one of the more insightful New Testament commentators, put it this way. He said, we often suspect that where there is more than an ordinary sufferer, there has to be more than an ordinary sinner. The disciples believed this so much that they wondered if this man had actually sinned in his prenatal state. In their thinking about divine retribution, they had not advanced far beyond the position of Job's friends. Well Bruce is right, isn't it? We may not say it, but let's just go ahead and admit it. We sometimes think it. Bad things only happen to bad people. Sometimes we even think it about ourselves, don't we? When tragedy or disaster or disappointment come into our lives, we think to ourselves, "God must be punishing me. What did I do?" But I want you to notice how Jesus deals with that assumption. Jesus dismisses it out of hand. Who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Neither of them, Jesus said. It's so that the glory of God might be manifest in this man's life. It's as though Jesus is telling the disciples, you're asking the wrong question. He said, you're trying to understand why God allows suffering. He said, but that's trying to understand the mind of God. And God's ways are not our ways. God's ways are higher than our ways, as the mountains are higher than the seas. Even if God were to explain it to us, we probably wouldn't understand it. Jesus says to the disciples, go ahead, if you want to spend the rest of your life pondering the imponderables, if you want to spend the rest of your life trying to crack these hard theological nuts, go at it. But it's a fruitless quest. The question is not, why is this man suffering? The question, Jesus says, is what is God capable of doing in the midst of the suffering And the answer to that is clear. Jesus said, God is capable of bringing healing. He's capable of bringing restoration. He is capable of glorifying his name. And as if to put an exclamation point on that, Jesus proceeds to do just that with this man. Look at verse 6. And having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. And so he went and he washed and he came back seeing. I love the way Jesus deals with this man. Jesus is so tactile. I mean, he makes a salve out of spittle and dirt and places it on the man's eyes to heal him. Now, you do realize that Jesus didn't have to do that. The gospel was filled with examples of Jesus healing people by the sheer power of his word. He just speaks it. Think about the centurion's servant. The centurion is a Roman soldier. He sent word to Jesus that his beloved servant was sick. Would Jesus please come and heal him? Jesus is making his way toward the house. Another servant comes out and says, my master's had second thoughts. He realizes that he is a sinner and he's not worthy to have you come under his roof, but he knows that you have authority. If you'll simply speak the word, the servant will be healed. And Jesus spoke the word and instantly the man was healed. Jesus never even laid eyes on him. Or how about the ten lepers on the border of Samaria in Luke's gospel? They cried out to Jesus for mercy. He simply told them to go and present themselves to the priest. And while they were traveling, all ten of them were cleansed. Jesus never even touched them. But he touched this man. Why did he do that? Well, it's obvious it's because this man was blind. This man couldn't see. Jesus wanted him to at least feel his presence. Do you know what that means? It means that at the very least, Jesus Christ is prepared to meet us as individuals. He is prepared to meet us where we are as we are. He knows we're all sinners. He knows we're all blinded. He knows we've all wandered far from God But because he knows we're all lost in different places, he doesn't deal with us in mass. He comes and he meets us as individuals. And you need to understand that Christ is willing to come and meet you where you are. You may have wandered far afield, but it doesn't matter. He will come and meet you where you are as the individual that you are. That's a marvelous thing. Moreover, he is prepared to meet you and heal you at great personal cost to himself. You see this in verse 14 of today's passage. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. It was a Sabbath day. Now, if you know anything about Jesus and the religious leaders, you know that Jesus was not in the good graces of the religious leaders because he was doing these acts of mercy, these miraculous signs, on what day? The Sabbath, which according to them was a violation of the law of Moses. You were not supposed to work on that day. And so they had strictly told Jesus on previous occasions to cut it out. Stop doing that or else do you remember how Jesus replied? Jesus upbraided them for their hardness of heart. He said, what hypocrites. If your ox or your donkey gets into the ditch, you don't leave him there. And here is a human being, and you would leave him in his misery? Jesus, don't you understand? It's not a case where... Man was made for the Sabbath. It is The Sabbath was made for man. The Sabbath is to be a blessing, not a burden. Moreover, Jesus says, don't lecture me on the Sabbath, because the truth be known, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And folks, that was the thing that really stuck in their crawl. How dare he? That's a claim to divinity. It is blasphemy, pure and simple. And from that point forward, they wanted nothing more than to destroy him. Four chapters earlier, four chapters, which would have been a significant amount of time in John's narrative, four chapters earlier, we read these words. And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Four chapters earlier, they already wanted to kill him. So what do you think they want to do to him now? We would not have handled this the way Jesus handled it, would we? We would have been more circumspect. We would have said to ourselves, well now wait a minute, we know that if we heal this man today it's going to cause a collision with the religious leaders and they already hate me, we'll just wait a little bit. We'd say, we'll wait until tomorrow and then we'll heal him and it won't be a problem. Or we'll just wait a few hours until the sun sets and and the Sabbath is over. I mean, after all, the fellow had been born blind. He was not going to be any worse off on Sunday than he was on Saturday. That's how we would deal with it, isn't it? But you'll notice Jesus did not handle it that way. Jesus went immediately to this man's assistance. And he did that even at the risk of his very own life. John wants us to understand that that is exactly what Christ has done for you and for me. You and I are lost. We're blind. But when we cry out, Christ comes and he rescues us. He meets us where we are and he does that at the cost of his very own life. That is what the cross is all about. So that by his stripes, we might be healed. The hymn we sang a moment ago put it so well, Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. And that brings us then to the third reason why John records this particular story in his gospel. It's because, yes, it gives us a picture of our own spiritual condition, spiritual blindness, lost in sin in nature's night. It reminds us that there's only one who can deliver us and open our eyes, and that's Jesus Christ, and he'll do so at great personal cost to himself. But John also wants us to have a picture of what a life touched by Christ's healing and saving power looks like. You know, if you think about it, this story is a sad commentary on the religious leaders of Jesus' day, isn't it? I mean, a great miracle had been done in their midst. This is a man, you understand, who had never seen a sunrise. He'd never seen a sunset. You couldn't talk to him about color because he didn't even know what color was. This was a man who'd never seen the face of his mother, let alone his father's approving smile. This was a man who for 30, 40 years, whatever it was, had lived in utter and complete darkness. And Jesus Christ came along and opened to him, not merely his eyes, but an altogether new universe. And if anybody should have rejoiced at that, it should have been the religious leaders. They should have given glory to God. But John says, no. They so hated Jesus. Now, Jesus had slipped into the crowd, but they so hated Jesus, and because Jesus was not there, they began to take out their ire, their frustration, on this man who had been the object of Jesus' mercy. You'll notice that the greater part of this chapter is given over to the religious leaders hectoring, badgering, abusing this poor fellow, trying to force him to renounce the very one who had restored his sight. It's ironic, isn't it? Here were the religious leaders. They had physical sight, but they could not see the Son of God when he was standing right in front of them. And here was a man who was physically blind, but once he had been touched by Christ, not only received his physical sight, but spiritual sight, and he saw Jesus for who he really is. It's a beautiful progression. We're told that when the man was first asked who it was that had healed him, he answered, verse 11, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said, go to Siloam and wash. He calls Jesus a man. But later on, he's brought before the scribes and the Pharisees, and they say, well, what do you think of this man since he opened your eyes? And they replied, verse 17, he said, he is a prophet. But look at verse 38. Finally, they become so frustrated with him that the religious leaders were told, cast him out. They throw him out. But Jesus came and found him. Jesus found him. And Jesus said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. come to realize when he looked into Jesus that he was no mere man, he was no mere prophet, he was the Lord and he gave his life over to worship. You will notice that John gives an entire chapter of his gospel to this blind man, and yet we're never told his name. Elsewhere, we're told the name of a blind man, blind Bartimaeus, but this man's name is never given to us. Why do you suppose that is? Because John wants us to understand, this is why he records this particular story, that while this is a real man, he's not just a man. He is every man and every woman who has ever been touched by the saving and healing power of Jesus Christ, the Lord. And so the question before us this morning is this, can you relate to this man? As you look back over the years of your life, does this story sound familiar to you? Can you say, yes, that's me. That, that's my story. Because folks, if you cannot do this, and I say this to you in all tenderness and all love, if you cannot say that, you are still spiritually blind. You are still groping around in the darkness looking for something. But the good news is that you can cry out to Jesus Christ today. You can cry out to him for mercy, and the promise is that He will meet you where you are, as you are. He will open your eyes, that you may see him for who he really is, no mere man, no mere prophet, but the Lord of glory, and you can have eternal life in His name. For you see, that's what the gospel's all about. It's about amazing grace.